the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And, and welcome once again to a brand new episode of Sake on Air, the one and only podcast dedicated to expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's favorite iconic beverages, sake and shochu. My name is Justin Potts, and I am one of your regular hosts here on the show. And we are able to bring you this show thanks to the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. Normally, under normal life circumstances, we would all be gathering together at the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center to chat all things sake and shochu and deliver those to you over the airwaves. However, we are recording once again this week, satellite, uh, and we've brought the team together from various corners of. Tokyo,、uh, the greater Kanto region, and we are extending west and south、uh, to Wakayama as well,、uh, because this week we are talking umeshu.、Uh, and we will tell you a little bit more about that and why we are dipping into、uh, Wakayama specifically、uh, coming up. But, real, but first, real quick here, I want to go around the horn and let everyone know who is with us. First,、uh, how about Rebecca? Re- Rebecca just hopped out of a cab and jumped online, and we were able to get everybody in. We're all here, safe and sound. Well, I, I made it just in time, and obviously my Zoom hasn't caught up with me. So、um, <laughs> um, I hope everyone can hear me loudly and clearly, but、um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to today's session. Number one, it's because this is a,、uh, an area that I've got a lot of. Gray zones, and I'm really, really curious about、um, many aspects of Umeshu. So, you know, for me, this is going to be、um, really、um, a, an enlightening experience. And I'm looking forward to、um, getting stuck into some hardcore Ume talk. Me too. Me too. It's something that's so prevalent that it's almost taken for granted in, in a lot of ways. And so I'm excited to dig in this week. Absolutely. And Mr. Christopher Pellegrini, how are you doing this evening? Thank you very much, Justin. How are you? Oh, we're, we're winding down this, this Friday evening. We're, we're winding down. We're going to turn it back up for another 90 minutes or so, and then we'll wind down here.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs>、uh, I'm hanging in there. I'm in Tokyo right now, as usual, at my home in my closet, <laughs> my, my drink shack. And I. Too, I'm excited about this. I have been to Umeshu bars in the past, but that was a long time ago. And so I'm excited to kind of knock the cobwebs out of my understanding of the category. So, very excited to talk and listen to our next guest. Yes, sir. And we do have a very special guest this week because, yeah, if you couldn't tell by our introductions, We're slightly outside of our wheelhouse、um, getting into Omeshu this week. So we recruited、uh, some help,、um, the help of Mr. Todd Van Horn. Todd, how are you doing this evening? Hey guys, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you very、Good. much for having me. Yeah, we're happy to have you. We, are, we, wouldn't, be able to, we wouldn't be here without you. So <laughs> <No> . <laughs> <laughs> we're, 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 we're leaning on you this week.、Okay, well, um, how, are things, how are things down in Wakayama? You are down in Wakayama. Yeah, I'm down in Wakayama. It's great. I was sitting out in the sun for a little while today.、Uh, last week was a little chilly, but、uh, the ume trees are, they've started to bloom as of about last week. So now, as you walk around, you get some nice fragrance here and there. Another couple of weeks, it'll kind of be blanketing the area. 
Nice, nice. It yeah. is that time of year, isn't it? It is. I said I haven't been Especially out, haven't been out enough. Yeah, very <laughs> nice, very nice. Real quick, who are you and what do you do and why are you in Wakayama? Yeah, well, um, let's see. The second time I came to Japan uh, was on the JET program and I met a chef and we ended up getting married and we opened a restaurant. Um, and after we opened the restaurant, let's see, we had a kid and then there were some health problems in the family. And I randomly got a call from an old friend saying, hey, how you doing? I said, well, uh, the future looks a little uncertain. And he said, well, you know, my neighbor used to be a maki maki at this company and he, he said he can introduce you. Uh, turns out the company is Japan's largest uh, umeboshi producer. And so I ended up doing mostly international sales for Umeshu for a few years there. Okay, excellent. Yeah, excellent. That's the excellent. condensed version. Got it. All right, we will get into the a bit more of the minutiae here um, a little a little later in the show. But yeah, just to give everybody context, is that you know Wakayama, as we'll get into, is the center of right ume, that is mm -hmm. the ume producing region of Japan, um, right. and you know even though we do sake and shochu here on the show, and pretty much every single sake maker in Japan has a product labeled as umeshu. Um, it is a very diverse category, I guess you could say. So real quick first, you know, we're using this word umeshu, mm -hmm. which is <laughs> for those who are just used to yeah. talking sake or neither, you know, that, that in and of itself is a key word um, that we have to probably break down a little bit. Um, ume, yeah. referring to essentially a variety of it, would it be, I'm going to ask, I'm going to lean on you here real quick here, uh, yeah, yeah. Right, right away here, Todd. Is that, is ume technically, I've heard that it, we tend to address it as a plum. That mm -hmm. being said, I've heard it's actually closer to an apricot. Like, do you know the difference or how? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you could, you know, say genetically, which is closer to, I think in terms of characteristics, it's probably closer to an apricot. Um, you've got the the yellowish skin that's not very juicy. It, it's a little chalky when it's dry, unlike a plum. Mm. Um, the color's closer to an apricot. Um, it's the only fruit I know, or at least I haven't found another one yet. Um, as it ripens, the citric acid continues to increase. So most fruits, when they reach a certain point of maturity, um, the sugars will increase and the citric acid will drop. But ume will continue to increase. Um, Let's see, even after it's picked off the tree? No, citric acid falls after it's picked off the tree, but sugars will continue to increase. Interesting, yeah, because yeah, the actual, the ume that we're talking about, so this ume um, of ume shu, the shu, uh, the character for that being sake. So literally, if you were gonna look at it, it's plum or apricot sake, if you were just gonna try and give it a direct translation. Yeah. Um, yeah, usually you don't see these things. Actually, you don't see them in the ripe state very often. You usually see them more often than not um, in a very early, in a green state where they're very hard, they're very small, and they're yeah. used, you know, not just for making sake, but traditionally, like a lot of medicinal purposes and things going way back to when they were, you know, mainland China and kind of across um, the Korean Peninsula and, and parts of East Asia, you know, not they have other different varieties of, you know, infused alcoholic beverages with mm. you know, using ume. Um, mm. And, but more than anything, they've had, you know, it's been medicinal purposes or they've been integrated into used for different flavorings or sauces, or they have a lot of other purposes aside from just being chucked into a, a tank of booze. Yep. 
you know. Correct. Yeah. Um, a lot of people might see umeboshi. They're the dried plums. They look like they're all kind of like shriveled up and <laughs> like they can be a number of different colors kind of depending on what they were pickled in anywhere from like a really right like a light like almost yep. like a peaches color to like a deep mm-hmm. deep red um if they were maybe you know pickled with shiso or something like that but you see those yep. all over the over the place yeah rebecca so, so shiso is perilla leaf which is yeah. a um a herb that is often used um in japanese cuisine um the other thing is is that when see again i love sour things mm-hmm. so i love pickles so mm-hmm. my first ex- my first experience of umeboshi was someone said it's a pickle and so i went yay threw it in my <laughs> mouth and went whoa it's also a salt bomb because yep. they are preserved in salt so yep. you've got a little bit of sourness but mainly like the salt so that's um, right <laughs> so as a, a small tangent um just to talk about umeboshi yeah um in general, I'd say of the entire ume harvest, umeboshi accounts for 90 to 95% of the ume use. Mm-hmm. And then umeshu would be the other 5 to 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, so umeboshi, yeah, briefly, you, you pick them and you wash them and then, and then you throw them in 20% salt. So for every 100 kilograms of ume you have, you'd have 20 kilograms of salt. Mm-hmm. And you let them sit for at least two weeks um, to get some of the juice out. And then, of course, salt mm-hmm. the fruit. So in their initial stage, they're, they're 20%. Then you sit, set them out in the hot summer sun to dry for at least three days. And so they a lot of their moisture evaporates off and the salt content concentrates even more. Mm-hmm. So they'll probably be up around 21, 22% salt. Um, and then you'll desalt those and you'll soak them in various flavoring liquids with you know sugar or fish extracts or things like that for various flavors. Um, but the ones people like to give the foreigners first are the 20% salt ones. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, it's, I mean, the, yeah, umeboshi, it's a, it's a mainstay, right? It just pops up mm-hmm. everywhere. It's, you know, even though Wakayama is known for ume, like you said, they're, they, they make their way all over Japan. Um, and it's, it's yeah. something that is, you know, ingrained into the, the cuisine. Yeah. Um, because we, we, okay, so now we know, you know, we know what ume is now. We know what this thing is that we're talking about, that this name was derived from, and this thing that is imparting flavors and characteristics into this beverage that we're talking about. Um, so then we have umeshu, um, which is what we've, you know, kind of come to talk about today. And before we get into like real concrete definitions, just, just for fun, I'm just kind of curious, do you have, I don't know, a personal anecdote related to umeshu? How does umeshu just settle in for you personally when you're going out and ordering drinks or any interesting anecdotes or experiences that um, that you associate with umeshu? Well, actually my first experience with umeshu was pretty much the same time as my first sake experience. Mm-hmm. So I was probably 18 or 20. Um, so quite a few years ago, boys and girls. Um, that would have been 25 years ago. And um, it was at, uh, I'm from New Zealand and it was at one of Auckland City's sort of first really well-regarded izakaya. We ordered sake and it arrived in a um, tokuri or a small um, ceramic carafe. And it was this unusual sort of like amber, amber yellow, brownish tea color and I drank it and I was like "Mm." and one you know 
in my mind, the commentary was quite different from the commentary that was coming out of my mouth. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. In right. um, my mind, I was like, that's gross. <laughs> um, so I asked the waitress, well, do you have anything else from Japan? And she said, well, yes, we have some plum wine. Which, wine? Yes, thank yeah. you. And so um, I drank it and it was lovely. It was, it was sweet, but as we've well established, I really like sour things. And it had quite a robust sourness and a good amount of acidity that kind of cut through and balanced out that inherent sweetness and was just lovely. It was great. And so whenever I went back to that as a kaya, I drank umeshu. Mm, yeah. So, um, you know, that was my sake experience and my umeshu experience were at the same time. And actually, I continue drinking umeshu, which makes me believe that umeshu mm. is a great, what I call, gateway to sake yeah absolutely yeah that's kind of my experience has been umeshu like it's generally characterized as sweet with varying degrees of tanginess or you know sourness acidity and whether it's your favorite thing in the world or not i hardly ever come across anyone who dislikes Umeshu, when it comes to introducing people to, you know, to different beverages, um, whether, you know, if sake doesn't click with them right away, if shochu doesn't click with them right away, um, I always lean on umeshu as kind of a go-to and, you know, whether it ends up being their favorite thing in the world or not, usually people are generally happy with it because it's just generally pleasant. It speaks to those senses that just kind of make people respond with, yes, you know, I can, I can get behind this. And so um, it's one of those things that just me personally, I think every now and then it's, if I'm in the mood for, I will, I will have some, but more than anything, it's something that's always kind of a tool in my, in my tool shed that I can, that I can bust out. And I'm, I'm very glad that it is um, available. Cause I, as you said, it tends to then be a serve as kind of a bridge to getting people into other categories. How about you, Christopher, any, any feelings, experience with, Ume, umeshu that stand out? Uh, tons. Um, before moving to Japan, I lived in Korea and drank a lot of what's called meshilju, mm. which I think is a cousin, mm. and enjoyed it and thought it was like, oh, this is nice. This is a very nice, refreshing in-between drink for me, often between beers as kind of a, a little bit of a mm. diversion. And then came to Japan and where I was living at first, there um, had some close friends in the area and the the matriarch of this family came over in my first year in Japan with a, a big old glass, you know, glass uh, jar, big one, sack full of ume. Yep, exactly like that. <laughs> uh, Justin's holding up a, a jar with umeshu macerating in it. And uh, I, and then a bunch of this, you know, rock size sugar. And it was like, it's uh, ume season. So it's time to make your, your home hooch. I was like, okay you had me at hooch. And so I started experimenting with that and was making all sorts of things. And it was my, one of my favorite things was to bring a bottle of some home maceration to a friend's house for a dinner party and be like, here, I brought my own stuff. And this one's made from, you know, yuzu or whatever. And then after that, I started going to a bar in Shibuya called Material. I don't know if it still exists, but it was this 100% umeshu bar. And they had more than a thousand brands in there. 
And it's the type, it was the type of place where you had to be a uh, regular at the bar on the first floor, which was a show to bar, which of course I was. And then you could mm-hmm. request to go up to the fourth floor, which is where material was hopefully still is. I'm, that's a big question mark. And it was the type of place where you could sit down in Ikea furniture in this basically one LDK apartment looking type place. And you could drink through Umeshu made with a brandy base and Umeshu made with a whiskey base and Umeshu made with an awamori base and a sake base and, and Umeshu that also had red chili peppers in it. And it was fascinating and, and you could get really nerdy about it, which I enjoyed. You could talk to the guy and he'd be like, yeah, this is made with bungo ume. And this one's with, you know, gyokue ume or whatever the, the varietal is. And it was fun. And I created some pretty good hangovers at that place. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think on it very favorably to this day. Yeah. So Todd, what's, what, what was your first experience with Umeshu? Was it, I assume it was well before you moved into the business of Umeboshi. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, I mean, my, my first experience, I guess, was maybe the first time I came to Japan just drinking, you know, the, the regular Choya green bottle with some friends, not terribly memorable. Um, but, you know, once I came to Wakayama before I, sorry, <laughs> am I allowed to say that? We're not getting sponsored by them. <laughs> no, um, I, I, have, I have a lot of very good things to say about Choya. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, just picking that shelf or picking that uh, bottle off the shelf and drinking it was not terribly memorable. But, you know, coming to Wakayama, um, where, you know, like you said, you know, people showed up with the, the glass jar and they're like, here's two kilograms of ume, just throw them in there with some sugar. I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and it became this this yearly tradition and so i mean that was that was a good long while ago and now i'm in my mid 40s i don't have anything against sugar but it definitely wakes me up in the middle of the night if i drink too much of it but it still doesn't feel quite right if i get past june and haven't put in my umeshu for the year and i guess that's a it's kind of a good thing to kind of bring up it's kind of what everybody's touched on a little bit is that it's as much a kind of personal homebrew exercise as it is a product like as far as where it is, you know, where people like culturally and, and mm-hmm. kind of where it sits. And as you all kind of mentioned, everybody kind of has their own recipe, um, which is true both for home mm-hmm. and for the actual stuff that's out there on the market. Um, you refer, you know, you're talking about stuff made with chochu and whiskey and sake and all this other stuff. Um, a lot of people, even okay. if you haven't heard of umeshu, you might've heard it communicated as Rebecca said, as plum wine. Um, it's not a wine. There's no fermentation of any fruits going on um, whatsoever. Um, it's an infusion. It is these ume plums infused into an alcohol base. So, so basically, yeah, ume shu, you have, as you said, you know, you have the ume, which is the fruit, and then shu, which means alcohol. Mm. Um, so it's a mixture of ume and sugar and alcohol, and that's about it. I think maybe the biggest misconception is that um, it's the alcohol that draws the flavor out of the ume. It, it's actually the sugar. Um, for children, you don't make umeshu, of course. You make ume juice, which is just sugar poured over ume. Usually ume that have been frozen to help them break down a little bit. But as the sugar melts, then it's the osmotic pressure of those molecules that draws the juice and the extract out of the ume. Um, it's kind of amazing to watch um, ume juice made at the right ratio over a week or two the ume will just shrivel up into like, like raisins, you know, very large raisins, of course, but um, all the stuff inside just gets sucked out of them. And so that's the same thing that happens in umeshu. You throw it in uh, alcohol with sugar, 
And as the sugar melts, it's the osmotic pressure that draws everything out of the ume. And in the case of alcohol, then the alcohol preserves the um, polyphenols, uh, the tannins, and any other flavors and colors that come out. So, Todd, what I want to sort of maybe tunnel in on, if I could, is you yeah. said alcohol. That's a very large catchment of beverages. Mm -hmm. Can we get a little bit more specific about the kinds of alcohol that can be used um, in the recipe of making um, sure. ume? Yeah, of course. So you're right. So ume wine implies that it's fermented. And actually, there are some fermented ume wines on the market, but that's not really what you're talking about when you say umeshu. Um, umeshu for the most part is an alcohol at a strength where it can pull out and preserve the ume extract and juice. Um, so it's usually 30 to 35%. Um, you can use white liquor, which is mostly what I use. Um, it's just, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, neutral spirits diluted down to 35%. Other popular ones are brandy. Um, which is, you know, the same. It's just uh, same thing, mostly derived from uh, or from wine. Um, at, also at thirty-five percent, you can use vodka. You can use awamori. You can use uh, nihonshu. Um, but so, nihonshu yeah. is a ferment, and you've, uh, just, like, you've been listing distilled beverages, and then you put in a uh, ferment at the end. But but you're not fermenting the ume. You, you're taking nihonshu that's finished and putting ume in it. So the ume part, at least, is a maceration. But for the most part, people don't use the, the right. nihonshu. Right. But the thing is, at the start of your definition, you said it's around about 30% alcohol. And sake mm -hmm. is around about 15 to maximum 17, 18. That's right. Uh, that's not 30% mm -hmm. or anywhere near it. So how does that work? Does it have a slightly different production method? OK, good question. So going back a couple steps, Justin mentioned that this is sort of a traditional homebrew hooch. Um, and actually the alcohol laws, the alcohol production laws were changed in Japan in the 1960s because of umeshu, because so many people made it, but it was illegal to make alcohol at home. They changed the laws to actually reflect reality. And the way they did it was to say that you have to buy the alcohol. So you've paid the, the tax on the alcohol, and then you can soak your ume in that. Mm -hmm. And so making umeshu at home in that way became legal. But and then, what mm. I was going to say, and then the caveat to that, however, is it's actually technically illegal, from what I understand, to actually make your own um, umeshu at home from sake or mirin, which are common uses, but because they are a low alcohol percent, right? From a legal definition, they don't differentiate, right? Between whether it's you know made with the spirit or with sake or mirin or something. Right. However, when it comes to homebrew, because they say there's a potential for fermentation, mm -hmm. technically it's illegal to brew to make your homebrew at home from sake or mirin, is, is, is what I've heard. Um, yeah, it's illegal to use anything under 20% alcohol. <gasps> oh my goodness, I had no yeah. idea. I'm yeah. so bad. <laughs> You're I'm going here. down. <laughs> We're going to drag you in. <laughs> Justin, hide what you're holding up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, and I'll tell you, well, I'll tell you the reason I learned is because I was actually working with some marine producers. It was probably seven or eight years ago. Um, and when and come uh, June, when everybody goes and picks the ume, not just they, they use for umeshu, but for umeboshi and for making all types of other ume based products. It's kind of a it's kind of a thing. You go out, it's like a, everybody gets together, you pick the ume. And then with these ume, you make all these different things. Um, and we used to host 
um, different workshops and, you know, little cooking events and things. And for one of them, we were going to, the plan was to make umeshu because hint, um, proper, well, honkaku mirin or real mirin um, is sweet on its own and makes for incredible umeshu. <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. You don't have to add any sugar and it's absolutely stellar. Um, and so we were hosting a workshop with some makers um, of honkaku mirin, honkaku mirin and in doing so, um, when we had to, you know, advertise it or make flyers and stuff, we couldn't say, hey, make umeshu. It was join us for the Ume Festival, where we do where we make all these things with Ume and try our great Mirin. You know, like we couldn't legally put it on there um, because it was technically, yeah. So I, I suspect that spoilage is also a possible reason for that. Yeah. Um, if you get down too far, like if you really try to make your own umeshu with Nihonshu at 12%, mm. say in March, I'd suspect there's a pretty good chance for spoilage. And actually, um, one of the, maybe we'll get into this later, but one of the techniques in making umeshu, or one of the important things is making sure your ume stays submerged mm. under the surface. Because if they poke out into the air, they can mold. Mm. And if you have mold coming into like a 35% alcohol thing, it's not going to probably hurt you very much take, take the ume out you might be okay but if that gets into nihonshu it could be a totally different story yeah. um just for our audience so top was saying if you're making umeshu in march you know you might have some spoilages because in the northern hemisphere um it is <laughs> sorry so for our southern hemisphere listeners <laughs> hey i've got your back i'm from new zealand so, um, um, so it's march and actually in japan in particular um, the temperature does a big kick up from the like the end of March into April and May. So you've got it, you also have a lot of rainfall and it becomes quite humid. So it's kind of like a, a ideal time for mold development. Absolutely, yeah. So I guess what's just yeah, it's a kind of subcategory that sake makers, a lot of them make or produce or offer now. But from a legal standpoint, a it's categorized as a liquor, but within a that, liqueur, a, liqueur. a liqueur. Sorry as a liqueur, um, but within that, it is not, even though that's what it's categorized from a legal definition, they are not biased as to, you know, what it can be crafted from when it comes to what that alcohol base is and that it can be just like about the United Nations of Japanese alcohol. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you there, Justin. No worries. Do you no. want to say your last bit again? I interrupted you. Oh, no, I was just going to say, it's just, yeah, they're, they're from a legal standpoint, they're not biased as to what that alcohol base can or can cannot be. It, while there, it tends to certain things more than others, as Todd mentioned, brandy um, or those, you know, neutral spirits um, tend to be more common. Um, it can run the gamut. Now I really want to, sorry, I'm, I've got this like huge curiosity now and so we're Todd you're saying the recipe is ume and alcohol which we've discussed mm -hmm. and sugar now that yeah. triggered a question for me because <laughs> sugar was a luxury product in Japan incredibly mm -hmm. scarce yeah. and like well until like the the 18th century and later it was very very hard to come by and expensive so if we're talking about a homebrew hooch that you're making <laughs> in your, in your, at, your, at your house with left, like locally gathered um, ume, ume fruit. 
I mean, that must be feeling recent history, no? Because before mm. then, the average mum and pop, mum and pop, couldn't get access to sugar like that. Can yeah. am I right in that making that connection? Yeah, I think so. Um, so yeah, the the first mention of umeshu in the Japanese literature was, I think, in 1697, which is what a hundred years or so after the start of the Edo period. I think there's still, people aren't sure exactly, you know, it, it was the recipe for a plum liqueur, but they think it may have been a preservation method for plums, um, not intended to be, you know, something for people to drink. To be honest, I'm not really sure, but it wasn't until later um, that Umeshu came to be more for common people. It may not have been until the 1900s. In the same way that Ume themselves you know, in the beginning, they were reserved for nobility and court cooking, and only later came to be accessible by the commoners. Um, Umeishu sort of followed the same path. Uh, when the materials came to be more available, then people were able to make it. I've, I've read that, um, and I don't know exactly how far back this goes, but so nowadays, a lot of times people's, you know, home brews, they suggest, you know, leaving those things to sit and macerate in there for you know, at least three months, a lot of times mm -hmm. six months to a year. Um, if you see what they've got at home, you, they, it might've been sitting there for three, four or five years. Mm -hmm. um, historically, I've heard it, 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 uh, you know, around like Edo period, you're looking at 1600s in there. Um, at that time, they were actually only letting it macerate for about 20 days or so was like the average. So it was a very, mm -hmm. very different because I imagine the alcohol they were using as well is probably not as high strength as well as even what we're used to just because they didn't have the technology and the, mm -hmm. right, the the control and so it was more whether it was per preservation or for the act of actually making umeshu like to drink as a beverage mm -hmm. that maceration period was a matter of a few weeks as opposed to now it's you know so it was it was a very different substance when you macerate it um I actually I've gone from macerating mine for nine months to six months to three months. And now I do mine for six weeks. Mm. Um, and I found, and, and a lot of people argue with me about that. They say that's way too short. But um, what I find is that the citric acid mostly comes out in that time. Um, but you won't get all the juiciness of the polyphenols, which I kind of like. It makes it a little drier. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if they weren't trying to preserve the sake they were soaking it in. I'm kind of wondering, you know, if, if Umeshu was being made in, as you're saying, 1600 and something or other, mm -hmm. what alcohol would they have been using? Chris, because you, you're, the, you're the still beverage um, genius in this group. When was the first recorded use of distilled beverages in Japan that was widely used or would have been able to be used? The, as far as anyone can tell, Awamori is from the 1400s. And then shochu, or what we would consider to be shochu, is some point after that, uh, probably 1500s. But we're talking about like if if it was those are very southern regions, so mm -hmm. Okinawa, you know, way off, way off the mainland. Right. Um, also Kyushu, the Kyushu area, um, almost a different country in those days. Really, so, it was. I mean, you know, Okinawa I, certainly was yeah. a different country. It was a kingdom that was yeah. very separate from Japan as we know it. So that's why I'm really curious. And I, I do feel as though this is like homework part two of like, 
where was the first image or maybe Todd you would know do you know where the first documented evidence of image being made was because if it was somewhere like Kyoto or somewhere around the Kansai area near Wakayama that would make it very very curious where what kind of alcohol they were using for this very mm -hmm. first prototype well I mean I, I I'm, I'm sorry I don't know <laughs> and I, I'm not sure that information is out there, or I probably would have seen it over my course of working in my last job. I really feel as though we're going to have to do an MSU part two. Like and we can do that. MSU, <laughs> the homework, the homework's due yeah, version. Yeah. We all come back and um, and share the results of our yeah. ongoing research. Read our read our essays. So we've been talking about the different types of alcohol that are used to make umeshu in Japan, and a lot of the base alcohols seem to be spirits of one form or another. How about the, when these things are bottled for the commercial market, what's the typical ABV range? I mean, you were talking about spirits up to 35% alcohol. Is it bottled at 35%? No, definitely not. So if you go to the store and you buy a 35% alcohol and you throw your own ume and your own sugar, what you're probably going to get is something around 23 to 25%. Um, and then if you buy something at the store, it'll be say 13 to 18%, 13 to 16 is more normal. Ranges go from just the ume flavor, you'd go down to 8%. And if you're doing like ume plus say a fruit juice, it'll be maybe three to 8%. Mm. Um, on the other end of the spectrum um, for like Canada has certain regulations for alcohol. Um, so Choya makes a strong at 23% to get around those regulations because anything under 23% is in a, in a different uh, category. And I guess, and so that's actually, that makes me want to kind of touch on one more thing. Um, so when we were talking, when we were sort of defining umeshu and sort of the ingredients that go into that and what that is, um, you have umeshu, which is a term that is slapped on labels that have um, been through the processes that we're talking about, but you also have something called Honkaku umeshu. Um, how does umeshu differ from honkaku umeshu? Well, first of all, what is honkaku? Justin, can you define it for us? The real deal. No, <laughs> I, I, I like that. that. <laughs> That's uh, good. The all right, let's what authentic. Authentic would I guess be the um, which implies that a majority of what's on the market consists of something other than those that handful of ingredients that we were just talking about, the ume, sugar, and some sort of alcohol base. Right. What, what exactly exists on the market? And what does that work out? Why was there a need for sort of this defining a honkaku shochu? Yeah, so um, between, I think it was 2002 and 2011, they were measuring it. Um, mm. There was, um, the, the amount of umeshu produced almost doubled mm. um, year by year but the demand for ume for umeshu only increased by 10%. So they realized that there was a lot more stuff called umeshu being made with a lot less ume in it. Mm. And so in 2015, then they rolled out this honkaku umeshu to try and uh, encourage marketers to make umeshu with only, like you said, ume, sugar, mm. and alcohol. And then they, you know, to try and encourage the market um, to value that higher. That means that any umeshu you see that will have brown sugar in it, honey, fruit juice, that, that's all not honkaku umeshu. Um, additionally, and this is wh where I'm not sure I stand on this, um, any umeshu with say vitamin C 
mm. for color retention is also not honkaku umeshu. Mm. So if you want to do a honkaku, you have to not use vitamin C. Right. Yeah, a lot of the yeah, a lot of the umeshu. I mean, it, it can include you know acidulants and you know, citric mm. acid and acetic acid and other you know additional flavorings and and other types of things vitamin c for color retention uh citric acid for for body just to balance out to make sure you have the same characteristics between bottles in terms of acidity and body um things like guar gum things like that uh fiber shokumotsu senin which is just what the yeah dietary fiber dietary fiber thank you Yeah. yeah and so when you're actually going out and looking and you see bottles with umeshu on it like, I mean, that's, that's another umeshi, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or not, that's up to, you know, individual, you know, <laughs> values and whatever you, you know, you think, whether that's a product that you want or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's reality from a, from a consumer perspective, that is umeshu as well as this, you know, well, now we have Honkaku umeshu, that's a very, you know, recent development. Um, and if you don't know what Honkaku means or what that refers to, basically you have a plethora of you know, products on the shelf and they all just say umeshu on them, you know? And so it's really, it's, it's, it's hard for people to know. And then with all the different potential bases of alcohol and you look on the back, how strong is this? And it can be anything from, you know, like you said, real mild ones down to, you know, 8% and anything up to 25 plus percent. And there's just, there's so much variation Mm. um, within just this word umeshu, which makes it, which makes it tricky. Just to clarify one thing, so the the type of alcohol wouldn't matter for honkaku. So if it's made with brandy or whatever, oh. it can still be called honkaku. It's just if you add other things like acidulants and colorings and things like that. Um, one thing I don't know, to be honest, if a, if a Nihonshu-based umeshu, like that Nambubijin, would also be considered a honkaku. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But I know that like Choya has a um, one of their paper box umeshus, one of the cheaper ones, is a honkaku. And they avoid using other ingredients by making it 8% alcohol and including that they use um, white liquor and brandy in a mix. And they just, they balance the flavor. So it's a nice light flavor, nice low alcohol profile. Um, so it's on the bottom shelf, but it's still honkaku. Yeah. Mm. And I guess, yeah, it's maybe worth bringing up choya a little bit um, is sort of just it being such a young category is sort of a marketable product mm. is that it has been such a, such a homebrew, it's been such a homebrew culture for so long. Um, that it hasn't really existed as a widely available product. It hasn't been an industry, I guess you could say, um, for all that long. It's not super mature. It hasn't gone through, you know, because it was such a, something that was so much closer to home. It was something I don't think a lot of places, from what I understand, really ventured into as a as a business venture. Um, and sort of what made Choya kind of interesting. So if any, anybody, you could Google, if you Google, you know, Ume shoe right now, Choya will probably come up on top because they're far and away um, the largest producer. Um, and they're a company that was based in South Osaka. Um, and they started back in the early 1900s, 1914, 1915, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, and they started as a grape farmer, essentially. They were growing grapes or in the grape business. And they went from grapes and transitioned into the wine business. Um, and then post-war, apparently, the big boss at the time had a chance to travel overseas and go to Europe. And he went over there and saw for the first time that, man, once we get an influx of product from overseas, 
we got nothing. We can't win on wine. We're going to, they have so much better product. It's such larger volume and so much more experience that we're never going to be able to compete on this. So if we're going to have any, you know, if this business is going to have any legs, we got to switch to something that's more in our wheelhouse is sort of the story that they tell. And then coming back, they pretty much around like the 1950s, just straight pivoted to Umeshu. Um, and at the time, I uh, apparently the, the uptake, it was, it was a bit tricky because it was still something that was still associated with being something made at home. And so those definitions as to what Umeshu was as a marketable product were still, you know, kind of up in the air and there wasn't a lot of competition and because, but because they got in early and really um, invested in that and being located where they are, they're essentially right next to, they were in Osaka, but it's just north of Wakayama. So they had access to all the best fruit um, in Japan, um, both quality and volume. Um, and they were able to turn a huge business out of it. And um, from what I understand, they were also pretty proactive in getting that honkaku or that genuine designation um, kicked in in 2015 as well too, because they started seeing all kinds of other stuff, you know, kind of eating up the market as well. So it's, I think you're right, Rebecca, in that it is still a, a relatively young market that's still sort of sussing out kind of best practices, even though it's something that has a long history. Um, I think it's his, its history as a marketable project product is relatively recent. And I wonder mm -hmm. if that's also why, just in terms of the price point, Umeshu mm -hmm. is, is fairly, you know, on the spectrum of things. It's, it's in the lower end mm -hmm. of the price point. And I, again, I wonder if that's because it has this association with something that is um, something you usually made at home, you traditionally made at home with your family. So like paying that much money for Umeshu, why would mm -hmm. you do that? So right. of course, this is a very domestic Japan conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about the rest of the world, yeah. but I wonder if that's why makers do try to keep the price point very low. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot of, in terms of what's on the market, it's mm -hmm. a very, um, the price point is, in a very, very low bandwidth, mm. um, you know, from the, the cheapest on the market to the most expensive on the market, it's pretty close. Yeah, so, and that makes, you know, yeah. And that means that the that therefore on the, and there's very limited potential for producers to really, ex, you know, be able to get creative with something that's, um, you know, maybe a luxury high-end product because they're very, there's, seems to be very little interest in the market for an umeshu that is sort of an added value mm -hmm. style. And mm -hmm. it also limits perhaps the way that umeshu is appreciated in the international market because it's maybe seen as a sort of a, a cheaper option. Mm, yeah. Beverages, am I going out on a tangent here? <laughs> no, not at all. Actually, that leads, that's why I want to jump over to you, Todd, because, yeah, I want to get into kind of the production. So you are in Wakayama, you're doing this. And yeah. I guess it's worth noting right now, too, so that um, Wakayama Umeshu was also, it got a geographical indication last year. So what's it, what's it look like then there now in, in, in Wakayama? You're down there. So getting kind of back into your, what you're doing down in Wakayama, we'll kind of get back in the kind of a half interview as well as insight sure. here. Yeah. Choya. Um, yeah. Choya has um, warehouses down here as well. And they have contract farmers and they, they do their own brewing down here as well as Osaka, probably Nara as well. The genius of Choya uh, is not this campaign they have to call all Umeshu Choya, although that's kind of insidious 
in its own way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but the genius of Troy was just getting on every shelf in foreign markets. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd go on sales calls in America um, and Umeshu is a category. It's, it's Sake's little uh, illegitimate brother, mm-hmm. but it, it's still a category. Mm-hmm. You have to have something on the shelf and they've already got Choya. Mm. And so, you know, I, I'd offer them a taste of mine and they'd say, oh yeah, this is better. And I'd be like, well, I can probably get you a better margin. And they're like, nah, I got no incentive. Yeah. <laughs> and so Choi is out there, you know, they, they did the marketing blitz um, yeah. and that's the hill everybody else has got to climb. Now that, that's not to say, you know, that they're getting junk on the shelf. Like I said, I wasn't too excited about their issue with fruit in it, you know, their, their standard offering. Um, but if I was going to recommend like a first bottle for people to explore, it would be probably the Choya single year or the Choya three year. I, th- I think for the price point, I, it's probably in Japan, they're 1100 yen and 1500 yen, maybe. Um, they're really nice, really deep, rich color, great ume flavor, definitely on the sour side. Really like those. Um, and also for the price point, I, I got to say they're difficult to reverse engineer. They're honkaku, so there's not a lot of mystery to it. But like, how did they get such a good product in a bottle, in a uh, custom bottle at that, for that price point? Mm-hmm. So, so that's where I recommend people start. Mm-hmm. Um, as for like, what's on the shelf and like, there's so much out there. There's so many different varieties all in the same price point. Like, you know, Nihonshu, you have this amazing, interesting variety of production methods and varieties of rice and where it exists in the country that it, uh, affects the fermentation, all these, you know, massive amount of, uh, what am I trying to say, variables that affect it in very interesting ways. In the end, umeshu is just fruit soaked in sugar and alcohol. Mm. And so your varieties are adding flavors, like adding peach juice, adding uh, pineapple juice. Uh, somebody tried to do a banana one recently. Yeah. Yeah. But also, well, what I've, I've heard from brewers who um, I've been speaking to about how to expand the market, mm. they've been looking at um, like wine barrel aging, mm. uh, bourbon barrel aging, whiskey barrel aging, um, cedarwood barrel aging, oakwood mm. barrel aging, you know, mm-hmm. doing lots of experiments. Rum was also one, rum actually, yeah. the rum barrel aging was actually quite good, I remember. I mean, we, we did an experiment with, with a brewery that in various barrels mm-hmm. and various ages, new wood and old wood, you know, mm-hmm. so breweries, breweries or umeshu makers are really trying to find diversification and trying to find some ways to create a more elevated product through yeah. ways that won't interfere with the, I guess you'd say the genuineness of the, mm-hmm. of the final product. But I wonder, would would barrel agent interfere with the classification of, of um, being genuine nope. um, umeshu? Yeah, um, barrel aged is still honkaku umeshu. Um, and it, it's a very popular category now, partly because of that and partly because, you know, like you said, it's not just a fruit juice blend. It's something better um, that actually does elevate it to to be crass about at the next price point. But really in, in terms of quality, it's something people are willing to pay more for because it does have that unique edge to it. My last company, Nakata Foods, we had a, a one and a five and a 10 year barrel aged Umeshu and they're fantastic. They're really great. Suntory has barrel aged um, in America in Oakland. There's a distillery called St. George's that has um, it's what they call the baller whiskey. Mm-hmm. And they actually make Umeshu in a barrel 
And then after they remove the umeshu, they um, age their whiskey in that barrel. So it's, it's a reverse of that pro process. Interesting. And then they, they market that whiskey as a highball intended whiskey. So there are high-end things like that that are possible. My, I feel like this is sort of a conversation for part two, um, <laughs> because I also want your opinion on it. And I, I feel like, it, you know, we could sort of get weedy about it. In the foreign market, I've had a lot of good reaction to Umeshu that would be, for example, $100 Canadian a bottle um, because it's unique, but it was unique in a way that it was, it was produced by a foreigner who came, like, you know, a foreigner in the food profession who came and he said, this is my image for an Umeshu. This is what I want to make. Mm -hmm. And well, my company did one of these. We helped him make it. And I took it on sales calls and people were like, yeah, you know, if this was $100 Canadian, I bet we could sell this. Mm -hmm. um, in that case, like I said, in Canada, it should be 23% or higher. And it wasn't. So that wasn't a possibility. Mm -hmm. But I feel like a market is there for something like that. As a slight tangent, for example, Vine Connections in New York and San Francisco has a product called Rihei Ginger, which is a ginger shochu from somewhere in Kyushu. Um, but they discovered the shochu, it was 25% alcohol. And so they came in and helped the farmer produce it to a 35%, made a cost, custom bottle, and then brought it as a U U.S. unique product that you can't get in Japan, as far as I know. It's a PB, right? Yeah. A, per, a private brand private brand. So I feel like if, if somebody, I mean, it's a very narrow use case, but I feel like if somebody were to have a success with something like that, do it in a way that maybe the Japanese market wouldn't appreciate as much as the foreign market and do it really well. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, like you mentioned earlier too, having, you know, Umeshu is something that's pretty close to home for a lot of people. So it's a little challenging to develop, you know, a, a product here in the current state. It makes it, you know, really create that that breadth but looking at you know like you said like the north american market it's just not available so it is you know it is something special there is no preconception with regards to availability or what that is and it's when it's made well it's incredibly delicious it's very very pleasant and there are not too many people who turn up their noses at at umeshu because it's just it's 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 very enjoyable it's very pleasant so, yeah, um, I want to talk a little bit, Todd, with you about where you're at and sort of what you're doing and what you've been doing a little bit more and, and sort of talk about Wakayama a little bit, because we're <laughs> talking about, um, you know, as regionality is important and it's a topic um, and we talk about these things with sake and the relation and shochu and the relationships um, that regionality plays. Um, because so many different um, base alcohols can be used to make this, the product that goes into it, the ume becomes very important. Yeah. Um, Wakayama, where you're based, is far and away the most, um, they, they, they own the market essentially, mm -hmm. um, both in terms of quality and quantity is, is the general consensus. Um, what's what's the nature of ume there and sort of the ume market yeah so yeah like you said wakayama sort of corners the market on ume um the what's now the known as the premier variety the nanko ume really um became widely available say in the 1950s but it, it it's definitely it's most agreeable to wakayama's climate 
Um, and so it flourished the most here. And then as flavored umeboshi, the, the pickled plums um, with the various flavorings in them got more popular in the 1970s and demand really rose, Wakayama was really the only prefecture to increase production to meet national demand. Um, all of national demand that you can see from the 70s through the 80s uh, was met by Wakayama. Um, so that's when it really became dominant. And so down here where I am in the Tanabe, Minabe area, even within Wakayama, it's just kind of a very small little area where most of the ume production goes on. Um, and, you know, like I said before, ume are very prone to spoilage. And so in the annual cycle of ume, you know, during the harvest season of mostly June and July, uh, a lot of businesses will sort of semi shut down and everybody will just focus on ume. Um, when everybody's so busy picking ume, you know, nobody has time to go, you know, see a house they want to buy or buy a car. And so, you know, the real estate agents and the car dealerships are all sitting around nothing to do. And so, you know, those people are let go by their jobs, um, you know, temporarily to go have part-time jobs picking ume. Wow. So everything shifts mm -hmm. to ume. And in addition, I think just as a way of trying to keep things local, you know, people try and buy their plastic packaging or their cardboard boxes from local producers. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a very, very significant local industry. Mm -hmm. um, as with everything in Japan, especially things related to farming, um, it, it's in severe danger because of the aging population problem mm -hmm. and the fact that younger farmers find it very hard to make a living mm -hmm. doing this kind of thing. What I've seen is um, large groups of people gathered together um, in my experience, it's usually women of an, 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 uh, of mm -hmm. the retirement age mm -hmm. who are gathered together for this la thankless, laborious job of sort of cleaning. And it seems like they're picking up the stem of the air um, before it can be mm -hmm. used. Can you tell us a little bit about like that process? Why, why do they have to take the stem out? So there's two, sort of two levels of that. Um, one level is taking off any wood that came off the tree. And then the other level is taking off what's called the heta or the, the little thing that's left, like the divot left inside the apricot after the, it's removed from the stem. Um, in my experience, you know, I started off in the beginning taking off each of those heta, you know, those tiny things from the inside. Mm -hmm. And now I don't even worry about it. I just, I kind of well, brush off spider webs. As soon as you said that, I was like, but is there and is there any evidence that that does impart any of flavors in the resulting emotion? I'll just say that not every producer removes those. Um, some producers, you know, will buy a one ton crate from the middleman and, you know, they, they lift it off their flatbed truck. They, they sink it into a tub of water where it soaks for X number of minutes. Um, and they, they lift it out and those are washed. And then those go straight in the vat. Yeah, because I can't imagine that being each, every single piece of fruit being inspected and tended mm -hmm. to or picked or pruned or whatever it has, has happened to it on a mass production scale. I just, that doesn't yeah. seem to compute. So yeah, well, just just a luxury of um, handmade umeshu. Um, all umeshu is to a certain extent handmade, I think, but like, you know, for example, if you if you translate that handling onto the bottling line, so the um, the Choya green bottles, you know, everybody has to have a new meshu with fruit in it now. Mm -hmm. um, putting the fruit in and and doing those bottles, it'll take your bottling line from five to six people to eleven people just to produce those bottles. Mm -hmm. um, it's a real pain in the butt, and everyone I don't know everyone, 
um, people people who I know don't appreciate Choya's role in making those bottles with fruit so popular. We've <laughs> <laughs> created a, a standard that's hard to yeah. <laughs> it's hard to match, well, and it's and, and right now it's and it's iconic now, right? I mean, people know that it, green it's bottle, totally and seen yeah. seen and, and the in, fruit in there, you know. Yeah, and in America, we're only going to have one bottle on the shelf. It's got to be something with fruit in it. Uh, in Japan, you might have room for two or three or four, but not not in some foreign markets. Um, having the fruit in also actually affects the flavor. It's not as good. So I recommend buying umeshi with no fruit if you're going to buy one. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not just picking a bone. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then, yeah. So then, what is kind of what's that process like? That I mean, you so you were working in a place where they were producing umeshi. You were there helping with the production, the blending. Yeah. Blending is a part of this. What is yeah. what does yeah. it look like bringing this stuff to getting this stuff into a bottle and getting it out to the people? Yeah. Um, well. I actually worked in the Umeshu factory for a few months. It's the only alcohol factory I've worked in, so I can't compare it to other industries. Um, it's interesting and fun and a, a lot of work. Um, you know, you've got these 10 to 20,000 liter tanks. Um, obviously, you know, they've, they've got the spigots on the bottom and the, a big hole on the top. And so, you know, like I said, you take the Ume and you drop them in the tanks to wash them and then you lift them up with a forklift all the way up to the top and you funnel them into the tank where you've got this premix of alcohol and you know sugar mixed into a certain extent. When you make it at home as well, if you add all of your sugar in the beginning and it dissolves too fast, your ume will float and then be susceptible to mold. So in the factory as well, you add the sugar in stages to make sure the ume stay under. Uh, so they're soaked for about six months and then you use a gigantic uh, sort of vacuum cleaner to remove the ume and replace the liquid that comes out. And it's, it's aged like that, then it's run through filters of various kinds and brought into the blending room to be blended with various ingredients and diluted down and then is sent to the bottling line where it's pasteurized bottled. How is temperature control during the production stage? There's no requirement for temperature control? No. In that sense, it's the same as your homebrew hooch where you get the ume in the rainy season and they soak through the summer and you take them out around the wintertime. Mm -hmm. Very important question that we need to get covered before we move on to the next thing. What happens to all of those alcohol-drenched ume that have been hoovered <laughs> out of the tank? <laughs> yeah. Um, those are sent back to the umeshu, uh, sorry, the umeboshi factory to the washing station where they're, they're then graded by usable and non-usable. So the usable will come back to us to go in the umeshu with fruit, mm. um, or the, the ones that can't be used for that will be turned into dried ume. So um, there'll be dried alcohol content removed and some flavorings added. Um, Hawaiian and Chinese customers especially really love to buy those. I heard- the, Are the non-usable ume used for things like um, livestock mm. feed or fertilizer or compost? I, I've heard they're used for livestock feed. I, I didn't verify in my particular company that that's what happened to them but of course there's a lot of those ume that aren't able to be used for other products um we're running a little lo long on time here so maybe we'll kind of start <laughs> wrapping up um yeah. but before we check out i mean just kind of go go around um so todd what's your right now you're you're at home in wakayama um 
you're you're not right right at this specific moment you're not employed in the umeshu industry at this moment uh right um what are you, are you thinking about umeshu in your future in some capacity yeah um yeah so right now i left my job uh, in last november um right now i'm studying an mba and taking it easy in other ways um thinking about things like agricultural tours or food uh, cooking classes things like that for when tourism does pick up Obviously, this is a great time to prepare for whatever comes next. Um, I'm also, yeah, hoping to use my connections to, you know, get, uh, how can I say, some, some forward-thinking producers um, lined up for foreign shelves when, uh, when, when those buyers are looking for new product. Excellent. Todd, thank you so much for staying up with us this evening and sharing your knowledge and your experience. Um, you, we will keep checking in with you, uh, keep us updated on your, on your endeavors and your exploits. And, uh, we will have to, we'll, we'll visit you again. Um, hopefully next time we'll be able to move and we'll, we'll take it. We'll have to do a con. We keep talking about a Kansai trip, but that keeps getting postponed by the, by the world. Um, and so once, once the world gets out of the way, we'll, we'll have to get down there and we'll, we'll continue this conversation. Stupid world. Yeah. <laughs> Messing up everything. Um, Sounds fantastic. Excellent. Todd, thank you so much. Uh, Rebecca, Christopher, thank you. Uh, Lovely to catch up with you guys. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, I know. We, don't, we don't get to gather as, as, as frequently as we're used to. So um, we're, we're, we're doing what we can here on Sake on Air. That's it. That was another episode. That's a, that's a wrap. Um, Sake on Air, if you want to keep, uh, keep tabs on us. Um, at Sake on Air on probably whatever is your distraction on your portable device. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube. We got a whole bunch of videos up there uh, from the Sake Future Summit last year. Those are all available now. Um, there's, you can send us an email, uh, questions at sakeonair.com. Any questions, comments, thoughts, feelings? And as Rebecca mentioned earlier, we'd be really curious to hear about your personal experiences, thoughts, feelings about uh, Umeshu. We are in, we're living in a bit of a different context than a lot of our listeners. So um, if you have any interesting experiences, um, yeah, send us an email. Yeah, tweet at us something, let us know. We'd be, we'd be very curious and that will can maybe help us in, inspire uh, what uh, Umeshu 201 uh, can look like down the road. Um, sake on Air is made possible with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and is broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo. The show is a co-production between Export Japan and Pasuke Productions with audio production from Mr. Frank Walter. That'll do it for one more episode here on Sake on Air. Thank you, everybody. You all have a lovely weekend.